Hey folks, here is another Patreon preview. This one is from our series Unions of the Mob, Part 2, the ILA. And in this one, we go over a bunch of stuff that happened in 1953. In this clip, we're going to talk about the Waterfront Commission and how it changed from the shape-up to this sort of, you know company government union hiring hall thing that was nothing like what the ILWU had won many many years before and then we go on to talk about the big fight between the AFL and the ILA and it doesn't go exactly how you might expect but if you want the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It is the only way that we get any funding for the show, and so we really appreciate it. If you can't afford to become a patron, jump in the Discord, message one of the admins, and we'll hook you up with our overtime series. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the preview. So here it is. Following the New York investigation, New York and New Jersey created the Bi-State Waterfront Commission to regulate the docks and permanently curtail any attempts at union control of hiring. Because workers had fought for years for the type of union-controlled hiring halls that the ILWU had won on the West Coast. And the militant wildcat strikes, you know, following the end of World War II had been threatening to potentially achieve that. But the state didn't want that because they didn't want to give the union that much power. And so the state stepped in to insert itself into hiring on the docks, basically claiming, we can't trust the union to actually run hiring because the union is too corrupt. So we have to do it as the state, the good neutral actors that the state definitely is. Mm. (laughs) Um, Mm. So by creating the waterfront commission, they basically shifted the problems of hiring from kickbacks and usury demanded for steady work. uh, That was common with the shape up the hated system of day labor hiring that had previously been used that, that workers on the docks have been trying to get rid of for decades to a new hiring process now totally captured by the employers who funded the waterfront commission. And of course, controlled this, this two state governments in New York and New Jersey that oversaw it. And the Waterfront Commission as a state agency worked with the FBI, the Coast Guard, and Naval Intelligence to blacklist any dock worker suspected of having radical views in the name of national security. One activist said, quote, They would call you down. They held hearings in an Inquisition type of fishing expedition. If you didn't answer right, they could take your pass away. They tried with me, asking me if I was a member of the American Labor Party, whether I was a member of the Peace Committee. I had wrote a whole damn hearing. Anybody who didn't face them out, who got scared, they would take your pass away. End quote. And longshoreman Pete Bell recalled... Quote, if there was a wildcat strike, if there was a disruption, the Waterfront Commission would be the first ones down and they would always threaten to lift your pass. So in essence, they were the ship owners enforcers, end quote. Uh, is it just uh, that people talked this way a lot back then where they like start their sentence and then repeat it in, with a slight rephrasing and that's in like the, the second part of the sentence and then make their point? And it just seems like that's a, a way a lot of these quotes go is it's like they, they'd start one way and then re- repeat themselves. Or do people still do that a lot? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I imagine you probably don't get a lot of chances to like talk to reporters and stuff. So you're trying to cram all the information into like a, a sentence they can write down and so you're like you know if there was a you you, you just keep clarifying kind of like i'm doing now where you kind of just kind of <laughs> run over what you said again just to be clear <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and so though the ILA leadership was happy to, to screen out radicals who might challenge conservative leadership on the docks, they chafed at government interference in hiring and opposed the creation of the commission, instead calling for joint union employer-operated hiring halls without the state's involvement, which frankly is one of those things that I'm, I, I feel like was an early indication that not everything had changed at the top of the mm-hmm. union with the ouster of Ryan. Because, you know, I, I know it probably came off as a more reasonable demand, but it's like, why would you be asking for the employer's involvement in that in any way? <laughs> uh, like the union run hiring halls on the West Coast have been running great for a long time. So really, you just needed to copy that. <laughs> it, it almost feels like like mandated company unions, in a, in, in a, at least in this one particular aspect. Well, and I also think a lot of it, though, comes from the buddy-buddy relationship that a lot of the higher-ups had with a lot of the shipping companies, uh, which was not quite the same as their relationship with the state. <laughs> and, and also, it's like you could, you could really put anybody you want in after Joe Ryan is out, what is it, 26 years mm-hmm. of establishing like networks and relationships and getting your organization like crystallized in a certain organizational pattern it's very very hard to disrupt that even from the top even if you're very deliberately trying to so if there's even some small level of oversight like yeah a lot of old old patterns are going to reemerge. yeah and the shift to hiring regulated by the state did eliminate the shape up And it did greatly reduce the opportunity for kickback schemes and other abuse by both corrupt company officials and mobbed up union reps. And that's that is an unalloyed good. Getting rid of the shape up was absolutely a big improvement from this. But it also allowed the state to enforce the needs of the bosses and to screen out radicals and the militant rank and file. And because this was embodied in a state commission, it took away, you know, a lot of the ability of the union itself to protest because, you know, when it's the actions of the shippers, you can go on strike. But when it's run by the state and they're like, you have to go through us or nothing else or you're never getting a job, you're put in a pretty tough position. And so, like, you know, the ILWU had union-controlled hiring on a rotational basis informed by seniority via a combination of democratic union structures and practices and an openly pro-class struggle ideological orientation. and Via that, they were able to, you know, win all the pros of a union-dominated hiring hall uh, without any of the cons. The ILA leaders did want to get rid of the Waterfront Commission, but the joint union-employer hiring, you know, I suspect is a lot more what they wanted so they can continue those same arrangements that they long had with their friends in the shipping industry and to blackball union dissidents who were opposed to business unionism's friendly collaborationist relations with employers. I think the state would definitely use this as like a uh, a wedge to make sure that the method that the ILWU came up with the hiring or with hiring was actually just something that would not come to pass because with mm-hmm. that really great example of union control and the militancy of the ILWU, the state is like, well, we cannot have this over here as well. Well, right, and and. The power of the Waterfront Commission actually only expanded over time. And in 1960, it was given partial control over the ILA's pension fund, which was justified as necessary to prevent mob misuse of the funds, which had, of course, happened with the Teamsters and was considering the history of Ryan's uh, association with the mob, probably an actual concern of at least some members of the ILA. However, again, Giving the state control of it gives the state more leverage over the workers 
to be able to use that to discourage strikes because you're basically able to threaten their retirement. And in her book, Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America, Ellen Schrecker describes the impact of the Waterfront Commission's screening on dock workers. Quote, Nearly 3,000 longshoremen and seamen failed to pass the screening test, invoking the traditional image of the communist saboteur, the Coast Guard commandant explained that these workers had been denied clearance in order to protect the nation's waterfront from anyone who might engage in sabotage by inducing unrest, strikes and slowdowns, or espionage. Coast Guard examiners were quite explicit about their labor politics that drove the program, One longshoreman was actually told that he would be cleared of charges if he could prove that he had supported the anti-communist factions within the ILWU. Other maritime workers got the message. Activists and ordinary seamen alike kept a low profile and reduced their demands on employers, end quote. Yeah. And so this is, again, I I actually think this quote, I think this is excellent writing by by Schrecker and, and great analysis, because I think this is a brilliant case of you of a way that we can use uh, Stafford Beer's very good heuristic, the purpose of a system is what it does, mm-hmm. to look at the Bi-State Waterfront Commission. Because, you know, look, I can apply my, like, you know, a, a, an analysis to say, well, if you go and look at this, this is clearly the state is setting up this commission in order to suppress labor dissent on the docks, stop strikes, and keep you know, the flow of goods for the ruling class moving. But of course, the professed purpose of the Waterfront Commission isn't to do any of that. Its sole purpose, according to the state, you know, these these completely politically neutral and well-meaning arbiters of justice, <laughs> the only purpose of the Bi-State Waterfront Commission is to weed out corruption and allow, you know, the workers to go to work and earn an honest living without having to worry about the tyranny of the mafia, which is a wonderful sounding purpose. Uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> if that was the only purpose, there's so many other ways that you could have set it up. You could have, you know, again, given the union a lot more control, but with an oversight sort of body there, you can also, in the same way that we've seen in consent decrees following RICO investigations in the 80s and 90s, as part of the creation of the commission, require the imposition of rank and file democratic bylaws within the union, which would allow the rank and file to hold its leadership accountable, which, as we have seen, you know, in yeah, I would I would cite a single episode, but I would just say our entire Patreon canon, that that is one of the single most effective ways to fight corruption within a union is to promote and protect union democracy. But the, the state never even pretended to give a shit about any of that. I believe they thought that if they could just avoid the, you know, person who's shaking down the workers at any particular job job site, they could just create an overall system that just stopped what they really cared about, which was interrupting capital. Yeah, well, and it's also just like, you know, I don't know if at any point they had been at all interested in uh, eliminating corruption, then there would have been an equivalent body or they would have expanded the uh, focus of the commission to also investigate the employers. Exactly. That's it. Like, Mm -hmm. if that doesn't happen, then the politics of this are absolutely clear. (laughs) A hundred percent. And that's that's one of the things, you know, that I want to emphasize here is that like, we're in no way, you know, covering for any of the awful corruption, which really only served to hurt the workers. Mm-hmm. But 
this is something that we see over and over and over again in the historical record and also just as you see in the in the media where this stuff gets warped so that you won't think about the parts like yeah that corruption was bad yes it was but so was all of the other bullshit the shippers were doing that they've now conveniently uh, shoved behind a curtain for you not to look at. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it it's really easy to get in a in a box with the kind of propaganda because, like, we're at a point now where you tell any random person on the street, like, "Oh, did you know the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has a problem with gangs in the department? Like, there's gangs in the department. They'll think you're crazy. They're like, okay, tinfoil man, <laughs> get out of my face.' Yeah, no, I mean, it's it, it's definitely you know uh, one of these cases prior to the coining of the term but you know what folks think of as manufacturing consent Mm -hmm. or as we would go back to you know the opera the operation of the ideological state apparatus in in full gear here (laughs) with the the bi-state waterfront commission but if the removal of king joe ryan the ejection of the ila from the afl the end of the shape up and the formation of the bi-state waterfront commission did not make 1953 a momentous enough year for the ila we got to go back to that ejection from the AFL because that was not the end of the uh, confrontation between the Federation and the ILA.